Do you come here often, Megan? Almost every day. How long have you been uh, coming to the Lotus Garden? Um, I found out about it about three months ago, and it was in sort of the height of the summer, and it was just filled with blossoms. And it's still doing pretty good. I've sort of seen it from the street, and I just thought, I'll get around to it. And then finally I did. We are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, and today we are not recording in a saloon or a bar, but in a garden, the Lotus Garden, on the roof of a garage, about 20 feet above West 97th Street on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We are speaking with three people who make sure this garden, perched above Broadway for over 30 years, will continue on the Upper West Side. I'm Alan Winston, joined by my co-host, Rebecca McKean, And for our podcast today, we get to talk with interesting people, as we do every time we have a podcast, who are doing amazing work. So, from the Upper West Side Lotus Garden, here we go. Eve M. Kahn, co-president of the Lotus Garden, was the antiques columnist for the New York Times from 2008 to 2016. Okay, I'm getting a yes on that. And has <laughs> written hundreds of articles for many prestigious publications. Her book on the artist Mary Rogers Williams was published in 2019. And Ms. Kahn is fluent in French, Spanish, Hungarian, and so Eve Yanopol. Am I saying it right? Yanopolsia. All right, I'll try another one. Sia. Sia. Perfect. Okay, okay, okay. So, so, so I got that. All right. <laughs> Kenneth Carpell, Lotus Garden board member, is a licensed architect devoted to public service. His service includes two seminal years in Tunisia as a Peace Corps volunteer. Ken was a municipal architect and vice president of architecture and engineering for the New York City School Construction Authority. Presently, he is the secretary of Beit Simchat Torah Synagogue on West 30th Street in Manhattan. Jeff Kinley, co-president of the Lotus Garden Association, has been a gardener here for many, many years and is the garden's historian. Recently published an illustrated book with his wife, Louise, about the garden, which is called the Lotus Garden. Welcome, Eve, Ken, and Jeff to Bar Crawl Radio. We are about 20 feet above the street, sitting over a smelly garage in a beautiful garden where the fresh air has the sweet aroma of fall blossoms. The garden is named after the lotus. Why the lotus? Well, there, there is a story for years and years. By the way, that's the voice of Jeff Kindley. When the garden was first created, there was a neighbor who had a lotus in his bathtub. And he said, well, you can add this to your garden because we had two ponds at that point. That lotus went nowhere. You know, it did not adapt well after being transferred from a bathtub. So for 30-some years, the Lotus Garden was called the Lotus Garden, but there was no lotus. And that seemed a shame, so about six years ago, I started researching lotuses for the ponds and lotuses and water lilies, which we had had before. And the lotuses actually did amazingly well right from the start. So for the last six years, we have had lotuses. It's as if they always knew that this would be their natural home and they were just waiting for us to put them in. Did you have to get a certain species of lotus? No, actually, I went to an aquatic plants uh, nursery in Florida. I went online and uh, so did a quick training on how to deal with them and put them in, and then to my surprise, they immediately blossomed, so that was great. And there, there was no reason it was called the lotus garden because, I mean, there's certain meaning to the 
the word Lotus is regeneration and... Yes, and I mean, the wonderful thing about the Lotus is that they grow, when you get the Lotus tuber, it's really uh, an astonishingly ugly thing and you have to plant it in muck. And the, the whole idea of the lotus is that it is the ugliest thing in the world, but out of it comes the most beautiful thing in the world. And, and we're going to take a little tour, I think, later, and maybe we'll get to see the lotus? Well, the lotuses are over because during, oh. during the hot months, they flourish. And uh, then what you'll see uh, with a couple of them is the pod that's left behind, which is a fascinating thing in itself. How many visitors do you get in a, in a summer? Do you, do you keep a count, Ken? Uh, 500 people over the Tuck. season. Over the season, okay. Yeah, 500 to 1,000. Plus, we sell keys yes. to for $20 a year, and those people can come anytime from dawn to dusk, from April to November. You, you, you can, can't see the garden from the street. Becky and I have been living in Upper West Side for a long time. Since 76. Since, since the garden, almost, you know, almost when the garden started, we didn't know it was here until our producer, Alina Larson, said, oh, did you know that there's this place here? So um, how do people find out that, that you're here? And did, would you rather keep it a slight secret? And <laughs> no, we don't want it to be a secret. But my wife and I have lived here since, well, I, I've lived here since 63. And long before the garden was created, it took me 30 years to realize what was going on. There was a sign, a so small sign. So you're the same, you're the like gate. us, yeah. Oh, and everybody is like that. All new members say, I had no idea. I've lived in this neighborhood for a decade or more, and I just didn't know it was here. I kind of like the fact that it's kind of like a secret garden, yeah. you know, well, and the it, discovery of it must be, you know, for us, it's just amazing. It's beautiful. It, it does help with the mystique of the garden. And also, although there are all of these people who have bought keys for the very small amount of $20 a year or $10 if they're over 65, the garden is never, ever, ever crowded. I mean, it is a wonderful sort of refuge for people, uh, but to see more than eight or ten people at a time is unusual. Right, right. Eve, how did you discover the garden? Uh, it was written in Time Out as one of the most mm. meditative places in New York. That must have been <laughs> 10 or 12 years ago. And I came and bought a key, and as soon as I found out that they needed volunteers, I volunteered right away. And a couple years later, a plot became available, and then I slowly climbed my way to middle management, and now I'm co-president of the board. Right. Uh -huh. I imagine a lot of people yeah. are here because they're tending yeah. the plots, which, which we're going to be looking at. Yeah. And you say it's a meditative place, but I mean, I can hear the city. I mean, we can oh, hear yes. it, right? It's still, it's mm -hmm. still there. But you can right? also ignore it. When right, you're here, it right. Seems. It's got you, kind of you part of our. Most of the time, there, there was construction going on at 96th and Broadway last year that was the noisiest construction ever. So it carried to here for most of the summer. Yeah, well, that's, we're in the that's, city. That's life yeah. in the city. What yeah. are you going to yeah. do? Yeah. I understand that this plot is about a sixth of an acre. About yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. We are hemmed in on three sides by tallish and not that attractive Upper West Side buildings but which are obscured by the trees and the vines growing up the high walls. And before us, this wonderful garden. Can you describe for our listeners what we are seeing? Oh, tell us the goldfish pond story. How did they get here? The ponds were part of the original garden. They were always a part of the design. And they've always had fish. We had koi for quite a long time, but koi grow very big. And at a certain point, they were just too big for the ponds. The goldfish were doing fine, and it's all goldfish now. At one point, there was what was there was some large fish 
that was introduced, and it kept getting bigger and scarily bigger. And, and eating the other fish? Well, no, but with, uh, it seemed like nobody wants to see a fish that big. In the, <laughs> <laughs> so, Amongst the little goldfish. So yeah. we donated it. We, we donated the koi, and we donated this large fish. So it's all goldfish. Very nice. All right, what I see is winding, winding little paths. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess Table. they were always designed this way. Yeah, uh, it was designed to look like a woodland garden what was the theme. Uh, not what you think of when you hear community garden in New York City. You think of rectangular vegetable plots or something. Exactly, like the West Side Community Garden. Yeah, right. which right. is also lovely. Is this like an English garden? An English garden is usually, I mean, some of the plots look like English gardens in that they're full of a variety of flowers. But the skeleton of this is all sort of, it was laid out with these winding paths so that every time you went around a curve, you would see something new. Kind and of like Central Park. Yes, yes it is. Yeah. It is. Not yeah. dissimilar. Yeah. And then the right. tables. Are, earlier I saw uh, uh, two young women over there playing cards. Right. And uh, yeah. an, another young man sitting over here having something to eat, having a snack. I think yeah. it'd be great to come out just to kind of work. I like bring or my read. computer and because you have these nice uh, uh, metal tables out here and, and and people do exactly that. Some a couple of people have written novels here. <laughs> oh know, my! Over the years, yeah. Have, have they been dedicated to us? I don't know. know. I know this from Pam <laughs> Wagner. Okay. So. Clearly, the three of you feel strongly mm. that this garden is important, and you give it so much of your time mm. and attention. Why do you do that? It's yeah. a gift to the public. During COVID, there was one woman across the street who um, literally sent us thank you notes for maintaining this place and keeping it open. We closed for, for a brief period, but then we reopened. She sent us thank you notes. She was eight and a half months pregnant with twins, mm -hmm. and she wrote us a note saying, I can't, she lives across the street from here. She said, I literally can't even get to Riverside Park. So, but why, what is it about gardening that you I you imagine you three garden, yes? Yeah. Oh, I uh, had a house upstate until we sold it in 2000 or something, and I'm one of the few people who knew about Lotus Garden from day one because I live in the tall building across the street, oh. and I watched them tear down the movie theaters that were here, and I watched them build the Columbia, and I saw... And the Columbia is the building which th right, yeah, that's right, right yeah, here. It, right, it, this right is there. their property. Right on Broadway. Yes. Yeah. In the corner there. And I saw them lay out the garden. So, uh, and I learned to garden. I grew up in the city in the Bronx, so we had house plants, but not till we had our house. We sold the house, and I knew I wanted to continue gardening. And so, Eve, why, why, what do you love about gardening? I grew up in an 1830s farmhouse in Stamford, Connecticut, that had gardens laid out in the 1930s by a woman who was a champion gardener in Fairfield County. And I grew up um, following my dad, taking care of wisteria and mm. viburnum and roses. And uh, that's what I have in my plot here. And, and we'll visit your plot maybe in, in a few minutes. And but I come here for mm. peace and quiet. That's what I was going to ask. Is, is it something that you, is, is gardening, a, it must be a joy. It must be, I mean, because I think of it as backbreaking work, frankly. <laughs> you know, mm. pulling weeds out of the ground. That's what my, when I, I grew up in Miami, in, in North Miami, and my father would make us, like, mow would the lawn <laughs> and pull the weeds. And it's like, I, I learned to kind of not really like it. 
So my plot is five by 20 feet, so mm, it's yes. not nearly as crazy mm. burdensome as the property I grew up on. And so for me, five by 20 feet feels like a dollhouse and yeah. I can get everything just so in five by 20 feet, which you can't do on a, on a Miami lawn. lawn. Right, right, so does right. So does that determine w what you grow and how you arrange the, the plants? There is a plan to this. People just well, can't plan and anything. You, and you have to keep to it. No, not, well, not really. I mean, the structure he's referring to is these trees, which are actually large bushes, and the tree we're under, and the trees, and some of the shrubs were all part of the original planting, and we discourage people, i.e. you need board approval if you want to do anything with them. But otherwise, people were pretty open to planting anything, except like a tree that's going to grow too big and uh, shade someone else's plot. You do have several gorgeous trees, and I, I, I no. would like to talk about the trees. I mean, the one we're under is just delightful. Witch hazel. You know? Oh, it's a witch hazel. Uh, Jeff, I understand that you're the designated Lotus Garden historian, mm -hmm. and you recently published this book that we've been referring to with your wife, Louise. Uh, let's learn a little bit about how this all happened. It's quite amazing. Uh, the beginnings of the garden go back to the 1970s, as I understand it. Yes. And the Upper West Side was not then what it is now. Could you talk a little bit about the beginnings of the garden? How did it happen Sure. that we're here? Also, the book is not all that recent because I put it together for the 30th anniversary of the garden, which was seven years ago. Originally, if you go way, way back, the subway was constructed in 1908, and for the first time, people could come to this part of the Upper West Side. Uh, before that, it was pretty much barren territory. But then it started to be built up, and producers downtown realized that they could have theaters uptown. So in 1912, they hired uh, Thomas Lamb, who was a famous designer, to create the Riverside and the Riviera theaters, which spanned the block from 96th to 97th on Broadway. This was sort of the backstage, because they were legitimate theaters. You know, vaudeville theaters. They started off as legitimate theaters, and it was like out of town, or shows that were beginning to do less well on Broadway could move up here. A lot of people made their debuts here. Betty Davis first appeared in Ooh. New York City on the stage of the Riviera. It's the first I heard that. That's great. Mm. Sarah Bernhardt performed on the, the stage. So that they were well, Humphrey Bogart, we know, was born and lived just a few blocks, just a few blocks up. Yeah. Right. right. And then they became vaudeville houses, but they were palatial vaudeville houses where Bob Hope and Mae West and Bert Lahr performed. And this was the backstage area, again, of, for all of that. Wow. And then in the 30s, they become uh, movie theaters. And they had first runs of all the great films. When I say they were palatial, they really were. They were sort of the model for theaters that were then built across the country. The kind of theaters that I remember as a child, but they don't build anymore. Right. Then after they became movie theaters, they got cut up and they were little movie theaters, you know, the way that things happen. And they were showing less and less good movies and they were pretty run down. And that I remember because we lived in the neighborhood. And we would think, well, we want to see the, a movie, but we don't want to go there. Yep, yep. And then, so in uh, 1970, they tore down the theaters. And this whole area from Broadway over to that wall and over to 96th Street, 97th, was all rubble with a chain link fence around it. Wow. And the idea was that this property was going to be developed, but there were all of these proposals year after year for things. There was going to be a gimbal's 
on 96, where the Columbia is now. No more gimbals. But in the meantime, the people who lived around here saw this big rubble-filled lot and thought, somebody thought, that could be a garden, or I could plant stuff there. Well, tell the story of Mark Greenwald and Carrie Mahler. Carrie Marr. Marr. As she tells it, had been walking down Broadway, and somebody said to her, you know, you can go claim your own piece of land if you want. And uh, because there were gardeners who had broken through the fence and had their own plots and nobody was stopping them. So she said she went and she decided, she was a songwriter at that time, and she thought, I only want a garden. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life, which is what she has done with her husband for the rest of her life. But her husband, Mark, was a landscape architect who had some background in this, and he became the sort of ringleader of what eventually were 120-some gardeners. Uh, who were just people who lived around here. It just, just took over a spot. They squatted. Yeah, they did. It was the squatter's garden, and yet a very, as I understand it, I wasn't a part of it, but a very convivial one. They said even, like, the homeless people on the street looked out for the gardeners. <laughs> you know, if somebody uh, tried to steal a tomato, then they, the homeless people would say, you put that back. Wow. wow. So, wow. That's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, but at one point the developers started to get interested in this. Well, this is what happened because yeah. Mark had been working on a project in New England with William Zeckendorf, who was a major developer. And so and he, who's an Upper West Sider. Yes. Right. And he knew him. So Zeckendorf proposed this building, the Columbia, which is a massive condominium. And Mark was able to meet with him and say, the community has opposed all these things because mm-hmm. they cherish what they've got. But if you could give them some kind of garden in return, I think they would be agreeable to let you build what you want to build. And so that's sort of the way it went down. What we have now, this garden which was put in, created at at the cost of a couple of hundred thousand dollars with all the amenities. We have water, we have uh, three feet of soil on top of a membrane and electricity, electricity, all of this, which has endured all this time. So then Mark and other members of the community d- designed the garden. They laid it out so beautifully, it's, it's still the same design they had then. Right. And you have, you have a lease with uh, Z- Zeckin, I'm sorry, Zeckendorf? Well, we have this lease. Um, every, once a year, we go to their uh, board meeting and we pay our rent. And the, the rent is a, one daffodil from the garden. Oh, wow. So that's been... A daffodil. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I guess you have to keep a daffodil I, I, plant I have going. One right. do- I have $1 a year, but one daffodil a year. Is that's that. much better. That's better. So it's a very symbolic rent that we pay. You are listening to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, not at a bar, but on the roof of a garage in a most amazing urban garden, the Lotus Garden. Let's talk a bit about challenges of cultivating a healthy garden on the roof of a New York City garage. Mm -hmm. Um, Does the garage have to be built a certain way? Um, Do you have to plant certain plants that don't require great depth for the roots? Um, You've already said there's two feet of soil here. Three feet of soil. Three feet of soil. What plants work? Uh, People, we were shocked how well the trees did in three feet of soil. No one expected them to get this big. Uh, and as for other plants, I don't think the soil has really been uh, a challenge. The depth of the soil, it's well-drained. The roof was well-designed. It was designed structurally to support this. Um, 
the soil protects the membrane, so knock on wood, we're not going to have a problem with the membrane. I mean, I just see yeah. people driving their cars into the garage underneath here and yeah. seeing roots coming down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Grabbing the cars. Yeah. There is an underground stream. As you know, there are many in the city. That's and they're, right. And they're mapped. One goes right under the Lotus Garden, as it happens, uh, and I guess drains into the river here. So we had a problem with our peach tree, who, which he, she, yeah. has been ailing for many years. And one of our gardeners brought a shaman in, a tree shaman, <laughs> to look at the tree, put some cuts in it, some crystals, but also <laughs> checked the maps and seemed to know something about horticulture. So we pruned it based on her instructions. But she also said the tree was sensing the underground water. stream. My goodness. Mm. It My could be goodness. true. I it mean, could the be roots true. do look for water, right? Isn't yeah. that the... Yeah. And we do pull out, this year, hundreds of baby oak trees. I mean, I don't know, I guess the squirrels bring the uh, acorns. We don't see squirrels here. But I don't think we would want an oak tree, which does tend to have a very right down, right. deep, deep tap root. Okay. That is a yeah. great story about the peach tree. It yes. was yearning. Yeah. For a stream. Yeah. Also, natural stream. And, and it's it's still living. I mean, I, for one, am not in agreement with everyone, was willing to rip it out this year, but... It's no, okay? No, no, well, no fruit. I'm, in years past, I mean, I could stand on a ladder when I used to get up on ladders and pick peaches on West 97th Street, oh which, which is a privilege and amazing. We haven't had fruit, but it is uh, leafing out. Three years ago, we had the most extraordinary oh, oh my gosh. crop of fruit. Because we, we would pick it and put it in baskets. We counted what we were picking, yeah. and we had over a thousand peaches on this one yeah. tree. Oh were they, did they taste good? Fabulous. They're really, they're great peaches. I mean, I, for the last several years, I've not been able to find a good peach. Mm -hmm. Well, well you know. we, we're hope, and then the following year it had three peaches. So do, oh, do well. fruit trees do that though? Do they? Is there a dormancy she's, sometimes? She's past her expiration oh. date. Right. Yes. When Mark and Carrie put her in, they would never have expected her to be mm. here 37 years oh. later. Okay. So she's kind of like our elder stateswoman now. We think we we're all not get sure. tired. We no. all get tired. I'm not sure she'll fruit or flower again, but she is so so loved. So the, is she going to stay here even though she's not putting out? So fruit? the we had a whole shaman ceremony in which, you know, me and two other gardeners, we sat and we envisioned her future. Yes. And she looks like the the tree on the Keebler Elves cookie package well, in yeah. our in our dreams. Yeah. So yeah. we hope that Hopefully we'll, we'll that's, take that's, it. We'll that's take not a, the peach tree right it, there. It, it that is. is. Yes, yes. Yes. We're going to take a, 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 a picture of us. Yeah, doesn't, yes. doesn't yes. she look like the Keebler Elves? Oh, she mm -hmm. is. Yes, yeah. see? beautiful. Mm -hmm. she's, also, she's the strange thing about this tree when it was planted, it was labeled a dwarf peach, and they decided to put it in the middle of the mm. garden, but it was to achieve a height of four to five feet, mm. oh and it's now like 20 feet. Oh, so. I think she's yeah. uh, surpassed her, uh, mm -hmm. her goals, yeah. So a while ago, the Rockefeller Center donated a couple of very heavy service berry trees. Yep. 500 pounds each. How'd you get them up the stairs? This was part of the original garden They're back here, and uh, they didn't donate <laughs> they just uprooted them because they were putting in something else. So Mark said, we've got a truck. Come on, let's go. Yeah. And so that's how they got here. How'd you get them up the stairs? I wasn't here. Well, I don't know. And also, <laughs> they were not this big. You know what? I'm looking around, and I see the trees that you were talking about now, the serviceberry trees, and the tree that we're sitting under. Yeah. They kind of all are like coming towards the peach tree. 
That's mm. what the shaman said. Exactly. Is that there's a whole communication wow. system mm. underground. Oh, I, and I, they're all talking I to each that. other. Yeah. And they're serious scientists who agree with us yeah. on yep. this. Yeah. Well, there's I'm, a, 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 there's a, 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 a fungus. Right. A, yes, right. Yeah. They're I, all I can never remember the name of that. So mm. you said that this is, there, this is an urban environment. What's amazing is that this is such an urban site. And you can't believe how many spectacular birds come here. And oh, butterflies wow. come here. Oh, wow. And if I showed you my terrible pictures of hummingbirds, which are simply blurs of gray, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, you'd be amazed. We, it, what is amazing is how much nature. Um, I, although I've never seen a hawk here, I've seen them a little bit Maybe overhead. Maybe because you don't I've, have squirrels. No, I think it's that they might feel uncomfortable being confined like this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Right, because all closed in. Do you have milkweed for the butterflies? Some we've we've mm -hmm. planted milkweed. We've planted mm -hmm. a ton of stuff that meant mm -hmm. to attract right. pollinators and birds. Do people throw stuff from their windows that surround uh, the garden? That's an interesting question. There's a history with the building behind you where you're sitting. It was, or it still is, a single-room occupancy hotel and some long-term tenants. But it has gone through various cycles as budget hotel catering to budget European to uh, tourists. And we tend to get you know, some bottles and soap wrappers mm -hmm. out of there. But for a while, the city was housing, uh, I don't know if it was a homeless population, people who were deinstitutionalized without any social services, and we got lots of drug paraphernalia. Wow. Uh, and we actually, for a while, we kept a box to put sharps and, you know, find hypodermic needles and right. such. That has abated, and the hotel has been pretty empty. Uh, so not too much garbage. A few things blow off the terraces in storms from the Columbia. Well, it seems really clean yeah. right now. You know, my, my, the question that I was really yeah. looking at yes. was the one about sunlight, because we're like hemmed in here. Yeah. And I'm sure there's certain parts of this garden that don't get very much sun. So I'm f flukishly, yeah. you, so mm. I've watched Ken sit here and, and he can time exactly when direct sun is going to hit yeah. his plot. There's a three, three o'clock <laughs> beam this that comes, so, it's like a sundial. This is Stonehenge. Yeah. <laughs> through, through these two buildings Yeah, here. through those two buildings. Yes. And, nice. And, you know, over this low building, depending on the time of year, 10, 11 in the morning, we'll get some sun. And the front is pretty much sunny, except for this time of year. I mean, I guess from mid-May to uh, the other side of the solstice. Yeah, no, it's bizarre, yeah. the flukes of who gets, within yeah. this sixth of an acre, there's microclimates of who get. Like, there's oh, yeah. plants growing 10 feet from my plot that won't grow in my plot. They would get mold, yeah. they wouldn't flower. Wow, interesting. Uh, mm. Ken, you were president of this garden from 2004 to 2011. Yeah. Uh, Jeff and Eve, you are co-presidents of the Lotus Garden right now. You're running a community organization. You got to make decisions. I already heard some mm -hmm. kind of you know contention. We're going to root up the tree. We're not going to root up the tree. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, can you talk about that? How, what is it like running an organization mm -hmm. like this? It couldn't be easy. Dear. There is a story of one member. I don't know how many years ago, who left and took all of her plants. Uh, and then you uh, had, yeah. Yeah, then uh, uh, Ken, uh, Jeff, uh, Ken, you had a stage that's burning our ceremony. Darkest yeah. moments. Yeah, to get rid of the malevolence. Darkest <laughs> right. day. And yeah. she was in charge of the ponds, and she took all of, she had a rock garden, and the rocks around the edges of the <laughs> ponds. She went off to Florida, and she took all that in a truck. 
Oh, oh my God! Scorcher policy. Late wow. at night, she drove a truck up. And no, she. It was in broad daylight <laughs> oh with her God. son, right. and right. they trucked dirt to New Orleans. They trucked dirt that had no value. Right. Um, they, they took the they dirt. Took the they dirt. took the topsoil. <laughs> yeah. They cut down every plant they could. Maybe they had a family member buried there, and yeah. it was a Dracula, and they needed the dirt. <laughs> I, like from Transylvania. Yeah, yeah maybe. I watched them. It, I was just stunned. Right. I couldn't think of any words to say. But yeah. that's an unusual situation. Super Most people yes. are cooperative. Yes. With Once and, in a and, lifetime. And right. also, I, and and these guys can can chime mm. in. But we have an amazingly tiny vandalism rate, considering that you know yeah. hundreds of people come through here. We're not here, you know, 14 hours a day when this is open. I think once some teenagers turned over some tables. Yeah. I mean, that's no, an amazing and, thing and, and, for a New York public. And, and once this year, someone someone thought they were cutting their hydrangeas. I mean, it's oh, very we had rare. Minor hydrangea <laughs> theft. But someone came yes. in off the street. And, and, was, and, yeah, oh, and know. you know, so all right. Yeah, you know, I've got these clippers. I have I, I got to use them for something. Yeah, so. they wanted some free hydrangeas. And, and the city leaves you alone. They don't. Uh, they don't bother you. We, or, we don't have any. Uh, We've gotten grants from, from yeah. foundations. Yeah. Wonderful. From yeah. the Citizens Committee for New York City, uh, helped pay for the rebuilding of the shed several yeah. years ago. Great. So how does one obtain a, a plot and become a gardener here at the Lotus Garden? Uh, I imagine they're really difficult to get. Yes, there aren't that many. There's not that much turnover. Yeah, but, I but imagine. Th but there is turnover every there few is, years. There is turnover. People move away. People die, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and the people who have been helping out in the garden as volunteers, we get to know. And it's pretty clear who has the skills and the desire. And when someone acquires a plot, they can do whatever they want with it, except for the legacy plantings like the mm -hmm. trees and shrubs. And uh, if they don't like what had been there, they can uproot it and put in something of their own. So. So yeah. you'll see drastically different tastes as mm -hmm. you walk around in our 28 mm -hmm. amoeba-shaped plots. You will yeah. see people who have a more French approach, which is more rigid. I personally believe that a mm -hmm. spot of dirt visible between your plants mm -hmm. is a spot of dirt wasted. Mm -hmm. So my you, you plot just is cover everything. Completely yeah. right. covered. No silences here. No yeah. silences no, at all. No right. border uh, dis disputes. Let's take a walking tour of the garden. Oh, lovely. Uh, maybe you can point out some of the highlights oh. of this rooftop garden wonderland and show us your favorite part of the garden. Yes. Right, we're going to start with Ken's plot. All right. The, Ken, Ken which was called the, the Rear 40 when I came for my audition. <laughs> uh, no one was. This is rear, the Rear 40 feet. This is my garden. All right. Very much in the shade. and. There are two pieces from the theaters that were demolished here, actually. Oh. The terracotta over there, and there's a matching one uh, over, over here. There's a bit of history here. Yeah, a little bit. So that's part of the uh, Riviera Riverside theaters. This is my favorite one, which I inherited, this shrub tree. It's called a Corylopsis sinensis, one of my favorite names. And the only way I remembered it is Flopsy, Mopsy, and Corylopsis. <laughs> uh, but now I pretty much remember it. And it really, in the spring, it has the most beautiful, droopy little yellow flowers. So there is some flowering going on over here. Yeah, you get an amazing number of flowers. And I try and get different colors and shapes of leaves. And I dug up the middle part, like last month, 
so that's why you see a lot of dirt here, Eve, but hopefully the stuff will fill in, I'm hoping. The vines on the wall, that, that's not part of the garden? It, it is. And this actually is a lot of bird habitat in here. So Eve, you're up. Show us your no, garden. this is Jeff's plot right yeah. here. Oh, let's see Jeff's, or right next to Jeff's, right? Uh, my wife and I tend this plot, and we sort of took it over because there had been a gardener who was here for many years, and then he became ill, and he was unable to tend the plot for four or five years, I think, and it was quite barren. He finally had to leave the garden, and there was a question, who would take over this now barren plot? And Because we had another plot over here, and we were used to shade, and this is like the shadiest spot in the whole garden. Uh, so I put in new soil and pretty much started from scratch with plants, but this is what we have over the last five years. And everything's doing really well. What's the statue over here? This is St. Fiacre, who is the uh, patron saint of gardeners. Very nice, he looks happy. He's happy and... Uh, and the pig? The pig is happy too. The pig goes in our bathroom as of in two weeks because he's terracotta and we don't want to leave him out during the winter. I notice you have a sign next to the pig that says, of all things, pig. Yeah, that's just so people will understand. You know, that's a pig. need a little help. Very um, helpful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Eve, you're up. Okay, so come this way. So Deborah's a life coach and Tiffany's an engineer. Pam is a high school art teacher. Lynn and Peter. Lynn is a college counselor who's brilliant and she's standing right here and Peter is a lawyer who's also brilliant standing right here. So this peninsula, these are my neighbors, Lynn and Peter. You're pointing at the plants but you're saying that these I are people. They you're have people. About. Doris is a retired therapist. So my plot starts there and this is a gorgeous annual called Plectranthus. This loves it here. Plectranthus and the it's uh, the Velvet Elvis brand. That is my Platycrater Arguta. It's a Chinese tree that I planted because I saw it at um, thriving at the Bronx Botanical Garden. Mm -hmm. Space, Brunera, primroses, roses. Um, you've missed my lilies. They were spectacular. I buy lilies and tulips in the most vulgar colors and shapes I can find. They have, um, they're purple and orange with curly edges. Oh. I can't plant phlox or asters. They wouldn't. They wouldn't be happy here. You've missed my astilbe, which is in a crazy shade of purplish red. And you've missed my clematis, which is dime-sized white flowers with purple edges. And you've missed my epimedium. All of this will be back in the spring. It has little sort of calder, stabile-shaped white under, a whole white underbelly of flowers. This is my skimmia, which is an Andromeda relative. And I've brought it back from the brink of death. And it, got, it has little red berries and you'll see it covered also in white flowers. So the really subtle part in the shade here is this. There's three different kinds of green ground cover going here. You've got euonymus, you've got wild ginger, and you've got ivy, all intermingling. Only the subtlest of, of garden eye can, can notice That's that. my one and only yew. That's my yew tree yeah. back there. And this is my wisteria that doesn't bloom. It's having um, an, a completely inappropriate relationship with that grapevine. This is a fraction of one year's growth. You're seeing a, a, a third of what I've, because I've cut back two thirds of all of, all of this is one insane year. When I leave town, I assign somebody to come keep an eye on it. Um, and you know, I'm not gonna tell you all the aphid stories because that'll bring you down, <laughs> right? I, I have Damn, to come, aphids. Yes, I have to combat a couple of pests. Wow. Aphids, are, aphids are the worst. This is a grass that we call the Donald. 
because in season it's bright, bright gold, and it's very floppy, and it's very obviously implants. You abide in a place for decades and never really know it. This is especially true when living in an old city with millions of interesting people from all over the world. The Lotus Garden is over three decades old, but it is new for Rebecca and myself, a hidden gem perched above an Upper West Side street. It is uh, coming up to the end of the Lotus Garden season, but in the spring, Rebecca and I will certainly be climbing up the stairs with our grandkids, now we're gonna have two, and we're gonna visit this magical place. We wanna thank Eve Kahn, Jeff Kenley, and Ken Carpell for inviting us to the Lotus Garden. This is Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. You can contact Alan or me, Rebecca, at barcrawlradio at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for our conversations with interesting people.